Welcome to the Wonders of Thetis podcast, your one-stop shop for all your Dragon Age role-playing game needs. My name is Ren. And I'm Jessica. Welcome to another exciting episode, the first episode of 2018. Woo! Happy New Year, everybody. Here we are. Let's, see, uh, let's make this next year a pretty good one. I certainly hope so. we got lots to talk about this year. 2017 was nice and full for the Wonders of Thetis. 2016, we started in April, so well, let's see, we're actually coming up on our second year pretty soon. Wow. This is pretty crazy. It's pretty great. You've come a long way. And thank you all for being there. Uh, incidentally, why don't we go ahead and get right to it. We've got another exciting episode that was decided upon by the folks on our social media once again. This choice uh, this choice outnumbered in votes, the other three combined. It's true. We and haven't... <laughs> is he... Forgive us, we have one very cranky fellow podcaster who refuses to be left alone. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to be left alone, but she also doesn't want to stay in the room. But she wants us to come with us. Oh. We'll see how it goes. Anyway... Uh, of course, we'll be talking about crafting adversaries for your games, enemy NPCs, beasts, uh, and uh, let's see, and you know, dragons and stuff, uh, and some some basic guidelines for building uh, your adversaries for the game. Mm-hmm. One of these days, we'll actually talk about traps and hazards and poisons. It'll happen someday. One of these days, we'll get there. Yes, it'll be great. Um, before we move on, we'll give a quick shout out to the folks in D Twenty Radio. Happy New Year to everybody. And uh, we'll, see, we'll give a shout out to uh, and uh, a bit of a signal boost to our fellow just beginning podcast, uh, the Movie Defenders, who are have a very important episode now because they are tackling one of the most controversial films in recent memory, Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Does she want to leave? Did she do it? Okay, there she goes. This is definitely a movie that their show was made for. We highly recommend checking it out. Uh, as the name implies, they are the movie Defenders, so they are going to try and, f- uh, and they are going to talk about a lot of the things that people disliked about the movie and try and find some and find some redeeming mm-hmm. qualities and try and build it up. I personally loved this movie, so as did I. I uh, I I was very fond of it. I I think that it defends itself just fine. But yeah, that's I, I I agree. There's... So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing some other people throw it throw their lot in in defense of this movie. Yes, absolutely. So, no news this week in Thetis, although 2018 is supposed to be a very big year for age products. We've got the Fantasy Age Companion possibly coming out. We've got Faces, Faces of Thetis, Thetis. Yeah, which is supposed to come out early this year. We're supposed to get Modern Age, uh, the Lazarus setting, uh, possibly even some news on the new Titan's Grave setting book. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe something for Blue Rose, who knows. Uh, and, it's, and then, uh, of course, they're working on Science Age, which is supposed to be like the science fiction or science fantasy fantasy age. Well, that sounds good. I'd be super down for that. And they've already got a setting picked that they're going to feature, which I think was, was a specific author, author who does uh, sci-fi books, and it's, it sounds really cool. You know what setting I'd like to see a, a game like this for? Oh? Fantasy Star Online setting. We could, we could, we could work on that. That sounds fun. Sorry, completely to the side, but he said, you <laughs> guys, be, you're talking cool. about science age, and that's cool. what it made me think of. <laughs> But, uh, so, other than that, we haven't got really much to talk about, but we'll let you folks know when stuff comes out, because a lot of this stuff is really modular, and you can smash it all together really easy and easy. Uh, but why don't we go ahead and consult our codex? Mm-hmm. You can ask me questions if you like, 
I'm not sure why he'd want to, but... Oh, good. Thank you. I'm going to regret this, aren't I? Welcome to the Codex. We've got a couple of repeat offenders and, of course, one uh, some of our uh, uh, non-regular co-hosts coming to join us mm -hmm. and ask questions. And by repeat offenders, we mean people who were kind enough to send us questions more than once. Yes. The nice way to put it. Uh, right, right. Sorry, still thinking about it. I'm still, uh, I've got the, all those Templar, all those Templar words in my head. Ah, uh, yes. Offenders. Speaking of, uh, I Let's think we see. have a question about that coming up in a little bit, but Indeed. first. First, uh, Donald Cowie asked through our email, I have been searching for rules for official or homebrew uh, that will allow for naval combat, big ships, and big cannons on high seas. And uh, that sounds like fun. We've actually already answered this question. We, we talked about it back in episode 8. No, 10. 10, thank you. Uh, the episode about Templars. Uh, however, we can reiterate a couple of specific points here. Dragon Age doesn't really have cannon-based combats for ships yet, because nobody really has you know explosive powers like has black powder yet. Mm -hmm. uh, except the Kunari. Except the Kunari, correct. The only people who have cannons are the Kunari and their dreadnoughts, which uh, which we know was uh, quite devastating when they first appeared and started blowing ships apart with their with their cannons. And the only people who had comparable firepower were the mages of Tevinter, because they could shoot fireballs off the bow. So that's that's pretty cool, but uh, that means that um, naval combat at this point in Thetis's history is mostly boarding actions, pulling mm -hmm. the enemy ship close and hopping aboard to take and kill what you can. This means you can probably resolve combat uh, pretty much as you would normally, just saying that the ships roll up next to each other and asking the PCs to then roll initiative. If that's not quite enough for you, we have a couple of suggestions. If you mm -hmm. wanted to spice it up a bit, there uh, are a couple of things to keep in mind. Blue Rose has two sidebars in its rulebook, Ships of Aldea on page 235 and Sailing Stunts on page 236. These sidebars can be very useful for deciding a couple of extra rules for naval combat. They include a couple of statistics for a couple ships, uh, the intelligence sailing focus as a new focus, and the next page, and then, then of course the stunts includes a couple of exploration stunts that you can use for sailing. Uh, and having some exciting adventures in the high seas. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course, if you have, so of course that does require you to have blue rose. But if you do, it can be very helpful. You should get it anyway. Blue rose is great. Yes, uh, if you have combats between Tevinter and the Kunari on the sea, you may may want to ma you may 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 want to make up some uh, AR, some armor ratings, and some health values for each of your ships because the ships are probably going to be taking some direct damage mm -hmm. with uh, cannons and fireballs blasting across each other, uh, blasting each other across the sea. Um, and that's going to, of course, create additional hazards uh, for the combats that are taking place on board the ships. Um, you can have the captains uh, of each ship roll a test to determine how well combat starts for their particular ship. Uh, this can be an opposed test with the winner just gaining a surprise round, or uh, this can be a standard ability test with the dragon die result tells you how well the ship is positioned, if the crew is prepared for combat, if there are obstacles like sandbars or reefs, etc., uh, which can then be followed by dexterity initiative when boarding begins. Um, now, Dragon Age doesn't really have a sailing focus, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. uh, in Fantasy Age, they added the dexterity sailing focus. In Blue Rose, they use intelligence sailing. And we think that intelligence or cunning in this yeah. case is more accurate to directing a boat. You know, like, you're not personally manning oars, you're directing the people who are doing those things. So right. Maybe even communication, but probably intelligence it. just to know how to do it. If you're leading, you could probably use communication leadership. 
That's true. You could but, use either uh, one. If you're going to have like a naval sort of like seafaring campaign in Dragon Age, it might be a good idea to uh, invent like cunning sailing. Oh, yeah. So that your uh, whoever's deciding that they want to be uh, running the ship can take that as a focus. Absolutely. So I hope that answers your question. And it's got a couple of suggestions for you. Uh, and of course, we'll move right along to Journeyman from the Green Running Forums asks, does the prepare action allow for two minor actions and a major in a single player's turn despite action rulings? Um, rules as written, no. Correct. If they didn't intend for the, uh, if they didn't intend for preparing to uh, cost a minor action, mm -hmm. then they would not have said that it cost a minor action. Yeah, they would have said it was a major action. Yep, they would have said it's a major action that you can take halfway through your turn or whenever mm -hmm. you, so or when the conditions activate it. Yeah. But because they said that, you know, this is a minor action to prepare, you know that it officially is supposed to cost more than the major action you're preparing. Mm -hmm. So rules as written, I think rules as intended, no. That said, I'm sure it wouldn't be game-breaking if a GM decided to house rule that into a different state because yeah. it's not that bad an idea. I mean, a lot of other games do it the, the other way. Yeah. And I think it, you know, sort of from a logic standpoint, it kind of makes more mm -hmm. sense to let somebody hold their action without making them pay for it. Right. And it can make things a bit more tactically interesting for some players who really like getting into the nitty-gritty of how of when, when they're going to do something and uh, what they're going to do and, like, entering a mode and then preparing to attack somebody when they get close. And if you have uh, somebody who is like a mage with some dispelling abilities, mm -hmm. letting them counterspell like that could be pretty cool. You got it. That's right. Prepare some dispel magics. Or even have the Templar prepare some cleanse magic attacks. Mm -hmm. If they're a master Templar. Be cool. Mm -hmm. You get some so, yeah, cool stuff. You, there's benefits and drawbacks to both ways of doing it. Right, right. Just keep in mind that you might be setting a precedent, and you'll it will probably come up plenty in your combat. So just know what you want for your game. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Journeyman. Next question came from Jeff Swingle through our email. One of my players wants to take the Blood Mage specialization at sixth level. Uh, I want to encourage them to take the. I want to encourage the players to take what they want, uh, but I also don't want to feel like I should be throwing Templars at them every other encounter. Do you have any suggestions for what I can do? If you've already addressed this in a prior podcast and I missed it, please let me know and I can go re-listen. Thanks. Um, Lovie, you want to field this one? Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, the This is definitely a question that should be asked, especially by players very early, so that they can know what the tone of the campaign is going to be like. Uh, especially if you, and it can vary depending on what the campaign's going to do. If you're going to be uh, walking around the streets of Val Royale performing intrigues, uh, our services for the Empress, then you're probably going to be on a very short leash in terms of what you can get away with in Blood Magic. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in Tevinter, you're probably going to have a longer leash, although people will be, although if you're important in Tevinter, you'll probably have a very short leash because yeah. there'll be lots of people who'll be very excited to tear you down. And if you're with a dragon cult in the middle of nowhere, you can pretty much just use Blood Magic whenever yeah. you want, I guess. So, if you want a mechanical way to represent it, you could make, like, an advanced test uh, where, you're, where you're counting up to ten, but every time the player performs some tra transgression or, like, like, does it in sight of somebody else or somebody witnesses maybe some weird magical stuff going on, 
Roll a d6 and add that to the advanced test, and when it hits 10, the Templars come looking for you. Well, and even that is, uh, like, that's a thing that could work for mm-hmm. sort of fairly standard little slip-ups. Yeah. I think dif- with blood magic, it can be so difficult mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, there's such a wide range of ways that that can go wrong. Right. And honestly, having uh, having a blood mage character doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have to throw Templars at them all the time. And in fact, mechanically... That's going to make things a lot less fun for your blood mage. Yeah, they're not going to have much to do once the Templars take away all of their mana and yeah, it, uh, are canceling all their spells. It kind of sucks being a mage against Templars. Personal mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. But um, that said, if you have somebody who's like, I want to play a blood mage, I'm going to cast blood magic at the divine. Like, I'm going to throw blood mage at this random peasant on the street. That's when there should probably be quite a few Templars in that first example. Probably every Templar. <laughs> that you, you, every single that Templar. first example, every Templar, and you're probably going to die. Yeah. Yeah, that's how that works. And your friends will be killed for conspiring to assassinate the Empress. <laughs> <laughs> or, the, or the Divine. The Divine. The Divine. So don't, first of all, don't let them do that first one. Or, don't. You know. Don't. Come on. But uh, primarily... You know, it make it inversely proportional. The use of Templars is inversely proportional to how much caution is used. Definitely. So, you're probably going to have to play it by ear, but uh, set the expectation with your players right away. Mm-hmm. Make sure they know, and make sure that your player is okay with the fact, and most, you know, often if you're, even, especially if you're a circle ma- or not a circle mage, you're going to have to deal with this anyway, the whole, mm-hmm. are you using magic in a populated area and you're not a circle mage? You're probably going to get in trouble. But, uh, especially with blood magic. So just figure out what your sort of world version's tolerance is for this sort of things and make it clear to your players. You should Mm -hmm. be good to go. Thank you very much, Jeff. Our next question, of course, comes from one of our, uh, infrequent, uh, co-hosts on the show. Parsival on the Green Running Forums. What's up, man? How's it going? Um, let's see, the, your question was rather short. Uh, you had created basically a Vargast on the, you created a Vargast and placed it on the forums, and your question was pretty much, what do you think of it? And... We, we like it. We like it. It's cool. We like it a lot. It's a really solid, moderate threat. Uh, depending on how... Now, I was going to mention perhaps that 65 health might be just a tad much... But if you intend for this to be uh, a really, like, a, a nasty fight, 65 health means it's going to be tough to take down. But with only a 4 armor rating, that's not so bad. And I would be more concerned about things like that, if not for the fact that you gave it a really interesting special quality that mm-hmm. I like quite a bit. And that is the live prey ability. To quote your work, uh, Vargas prefer to drag their prey alive to their nest to consume. They pull their killing blows, as per page 52 of the court rulebook. This is... An excellent little buffer that allows you to make a bit of a nastier sort of war machine mm-hmm. without feeling like you're putting characters through a grinder. Yes, it's true. Because Especially if they get uh, knocked out, then they're safe. Right, right. Then the Vargas is just you know, the Vargas is going to take them away to eat them. But now but, your friends have got a chance to try and get you away from the Vargas. Mm-hmm. Could spawn extra adventures. Could I, I just really, I think that was a great way to temper the beast. Yeah, totally. Uh, I really liked how the bite attack has kind of a hidden potential to get, like, three attacks on it. Especially if if the Vargas is able to generate seven stun points, it could get, like, four attacks on that bite. So that's fun. Uh, And one of those attacks can even knock people prone. So that's that's pretty cool. 
uh, and it has a slightly higher armor rating versus flaming damage. All of this is just... It's, it's all very well thought out, and he's and, and uh, I, I think I saw that Parcel even like looked on YouTube to watch the Inquisition, uh, Inquisition uh, gameplay of people fighting Vargas, and I was really impressed. Yeah, I think you did your homework, and I think it shows. Yeah. So. I hope people make good use of this. So to answer your question, we like it enough that we're going to make it our Dissonant Versus for this week. Well, for this week, for this, for this, for this you know, this episode. Fortnite. For this Fortnite. Um... So that's pretty much our Dissonant Verses. You should go check it out. We're going to be putting the link for the thread where the Vargast is featured on our blog, oneisathetispodcast.wordpress.com, so that everybody can come take a look at it. And if you like it, or if you want to modify it for your own needs, then feel free and Parsable, I'm sure. I, I assume Parsable online. I mean, I, I'm, I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. He's human. Hey, if guy. you mind, let us know and we'll retract that. We'll retract that and we'll hunt down everybody who borrows it. Because you're our friend. You take care of our friends. Yep. Friend of the podcast for life. So, if you listen to the show, have a question about the Dragon Age RPG, whether it's mechanics, build suggestions, questions about lore, clarifications about old episodes, or anything else, you can send a message to podcast at gmail.com. Send it to us through our Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, or SoundCloud accounts. Send a personal message to Cot the Predictor or Healer Puff on the Green Running Forums, or send a message to Cot or Lease on the D20 Radio Forums. That's us. That's us. All right, well, we kind of did our dissonant verses. No, we did. Hey, if you have a thing that you want us to show about Dragon Age content, send it to any of those places we just said. Yes, please. It's still us. It's still us. Do it. We like sharing your stuff. There's a lot of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. We're always amazed by the cool mm-hmm. stuff you guys come oh, up yeah. with. We've already got a pretty nice collection of it, and I'm pretty proud of the collection that we've got mm-hmm. so far, and proud of all the folks who've worked that hard to make Dragon Age yeah. a little bigger. Grateful for your input. Absolutely. So we should probably tackle this beast of a topic. Mm-hmm. I've got no uh, another cool jokes on it, it's, but because it's, 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 okay. it's the main topic for today, let's just go. I won't be uh, adversarial about it. Ugh. Is it fate or chance? I can never decide. Welcome to the main topic. Let's crack <laughs> open those bestiaries and talk about making adversaries. Yeah. Uh, now, whether your PCs are going to an ele- or lesion party with stinky cheeses, facing down wyverns in their nests, or trying to traverse the Tirashan forest, something is eventually going to come upon them that wishes them harm or social ruin. Which is a kind of harm. Which is a kind of harm. Uh, we will be talking about not only adversaries through combat, but also adversaries through role-playing encounters, as they can be just as interesting, if not more so. It's true. Uh, it may help for you to check out episode 13, and take the Wayback Machine back about, you know, 30 episodes, uh, to episode 13, Throw the Dragon at Them. That's her thoughts on encounter design. It's a bit broader than actually, than like the, the little stamp blocks that go into it, but it certainly couldn't hurt. Um, we are going to talk about some basic guidelines for defi- designing adversaries, uh, the very active forces that are going to be keeping the PCs from reaching their goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, adversaries usually means an obstacle that has a stat block, which is quite different from a hazard or a trap or a poison. Something that has sort of uh, the ability to move and create mm-hmm. like more of a person or a mm-hmm. creature. It has an intent for this encounter. Yes. And that intent usually means harm for your PCs. Yeah. Um, uh, adversaries are the NPCs the GM is controlling, uh, and they take many forms, whether they walk on two legs, four legs, or more. 
We will talk about some mechanical suggestions, pitfalls, and important reminders for GMs making their adversaries. All of this is a balancing act, but it can be a lot of fun. Uh, And very rewarding to look back on everything you made for your campaign, and maybe even share a few of them with us. Please do. Yeah, never mind that. Uh, A lot of this can be applied to design, uh, adversary design in other age games. Some differences make a lot of the points we're about to bring up less than helpful. Just FYI. Mm-hmm. Well, this is uh, this is the Dragon Age podcast, so right. while many of our things can be applied to the other age systems, some of this can't. So Your mileage may vary. Mind. Your mileage may vary. Uh, so first things first, before you make anything, you should know your party. Uh, before you even consider the stats of your enemies, it is paramount that you know the stats of your PCs. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you you because if you know their stats, how many of them are going to be, you should know how that what their stats are, how many PCs are going to be in your group, and what access they have to abilities. All of this knowledge will give you many uh, will let you make more informed decisions when crafting not only adversaries but things like hazards and encounter types. Um, so first, you uh, obviously take note of your PCs stats. Um, and a couple of specific things to watch for, and maybe get on a note card, and if you, I believe if you have the core rulebook, or uh, one of the old PDF collections, they do have uh, combat cards, which where you can put their name, their class, their ability scores, their speed and initiative down on it. Although, uh, we're ta- what we're talking about means you might need a little bit of extra info, so you might be uh, behooved to fill out one of the quick reference cards if you mm-hmm. feel like you've got enough room. Behooved. I mean, I'll take it again. <laughs> um, you want to take into account a couple things. They are the following: health. Yeah, you're going to say, of course, that will inform how much damage your PCs can take before even entering the dying state. If your PCs have got a lot of health, you can probably throw a lot of nastier stuff at them. Uh, if the PCs haven't got a lot of health, then don't. And if you've got one character with a two con and everybody else has a five, <laughs> you'll just have to try to do the best you can. Uh huh. You're probably going to get much more of a spread, so finding that middle ground will be good. Or mm-hmm. um, you're going to uh, let's see. Knowing their defense can certainly help. Uh, let's see. This is going to tell you how uh, if the foes that you are making are going to have an easy time hitting them in combat in the first place. Defense does not often have a wide variance until later in the game. Brand new characters usually have a defense somewhere between like 10 and 15. Uh, end game levels like 18 and 19, they can go anywhere from 13 for PCs who don't like getting close to the action to 21 for PCs who really focus on it. I just realized that I forgot to up my defense when I up my dexterity. Hey, you do. I should have a 15 defense. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, that'll help. That'll save your life. Anyway. The squishy mage in the back who's fighting the stuff that's slamming into the warriors up there. Yeah, well, hey. For, that's what force field is for. Exactly. Uh, def- now, so you're probably going to want to keep, keep a close eye on that and um, keep in mind that the PCs who are really focusing on defense, probably, especially because defense is really hard to get up there in mm-hmm. an age game, they're probably going to feel very rewarded if you miss a couple swings at them. Yeah, and keep that honestly, in mind. If you're hitting them 50% of the time, you're probably hitting the mage in the back 100% of the time. We're used to it. Take rock armor. Speaking of armor. Speaking of armor. Uh, and see, keep a very good eye on the PC's armor ratings. Uh, because the higher a PC's armor rating is, the harder it is to damage them. And, of course, this uh, this actually has a very powerful effect when AR gets very high. 
when they start taking heavy armors or even getting potent magical armors. Or uh, armor mastery as well. Especially if they get armor mastery. That makes them quite difficult to hurt. Having an armor rating of 10 makes a character incredibly sturdy, and maybe even more so than you might think. Because able to, you know, the ability to take 10 damage off of every non-penetrating hit is huge, uh, and it's going to add up very fast over time. Mm -hmm. uh, personally, I think that heavy armor should cost much more than they do in the book, but that will be adjustments they make in later campaigns. Uh -huh. uh, for now, it's only 150 silvers to get a uh, full ticket heavy plate, which is... That's pretty cheap. Yeah, it, Considering it is, yeah, it's pretty well. cheap. But, of course, that price was written back when they were only five levels in the game, so there weren't too many opportunities to get lots of treasure, so that was perhaps expected for you to get later in the game, which most people usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, now this can all and see now watching your armor rating you might also see some pretty big gaps in armor rating when you look at your various PCs when you've got the warrior up the front who's got you know the, the heavy plate uh, mm -hmm. and, and you've got maybe even the mage who's got who's really worked on their magic has got like a six or a seven magic I have a nine you've got a nine because you've got the staff of Partholin so she's got a nine armor rating and then there's the rogue in the back with like the four and well, the five she's armor not, rating she's, she's not in the back she's not in the back she's right in the front but she's definitely got the four or five that's armor rating that's still true yes um, so if you create adversaries who are good at punching through armor rating like that uh, and you set them up against the people who didn't focus on armor rating quite as much mm -hmm. as the warrior yeah. did, they're going to be in a lot more trouble than the warrior is. And that's not always a bad thing. Like, Correct. that can force your party to kind of have to scramble to figure out what they're going to do about it. It's true. But make sure it's possible. Like, right. if you've got a party where everybody's got cruddy armor, I'm mm -hmm. not sure why that would happen. Mm. But if you do, then, you know, maybe once or twice push that button, but don't make it every single time. Right. Like, Maybe it's a campaign about elven slaves on the run. Could be. That's very That'd be good really point. Cool. Um, so just be careful with that and watch it close. Uh, then, uh, see, so this one you'll probably have to watch less closely, but I have a particular reason for watching it nowadays, which is speed. Um, this can be important sometimes, as I found out in the adventure of the Autumn Falls. <laughs> uh, that was the best way anyone has ever won that right, competition uh, having a high speed especially in one-on-one -on -one fights can create some strange complications as i have learned some serious hit and run tactics because if the pc has like a 17 speed and like takes a swing and then cartwheels several times back away from the enemies who've got like a, a 10 speed they have to spend all their actions just getting close um Let's see, and even then, if she if she wanted to, and if they had, you know, if they were trying to be patient, then they'd wait for her to come. She would dart in, attack, and then dart back away. So then they'd have to approach her anyway. And with the huge uh, since autumn the gap falls, was with, so yeah. big too, it's true. Then she could basically choose how she wanted it to go. It was so. Yep. Yeah, you know, that may be a bit of a corner case. If your PCs are going through a lot of dungeons with tight corridors, it may not be quite as much of an issue. Just yeah. something to keep in mind. Just be aware. And of course, uh, you're going to know your party's ability ratings. This will tell you how easily they can resist special abilities or spells or hazards or poisons that you throw at them. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll also tell you how easily PCs and foes alike can set up moves like backstab, bluff, the taunt or threaten stunts. They have a high enough ability rating to resist the poisons they have on their weapons, avoid falling off the deck of the rain slick ship, or to see if their foes, uh, see if they even see their foes before a surprise round can be rolled. Mm -hmm. Those are so getting a general idea of the capabilities of your party 
Uh, and see, at the nitty gritties and the stats can really inform what kind of monsters uh, and uh, NPCs you can make, and and what your party is going to be comfortable taking on and what they might not be comfortable taking yeah. on. And just make sure that you sort of alternate between taking shots at their weak points and providing aspects that they are going to overcome. Yes. Like things that you even know they're probably going to do really well at. You should only occasionally punch them in the dump stats. Yes, not not all the time. All right. Uh, another thing to keep in mind when, divi- when uh, creating your encounters and your adversaries is party size. This can not only affect the stats, uh, but how many adversaries take part in an encounter. If you have a standard party size of four, you likely can just go about your usual business uh, of threat creation. If you have a particularly small party, two or three people, you may have to be careful about giving the enemies things like crowd control powers, like Mind Blaster Days. Uh, or how much damage your adversaries deal, or how much staying power the adversaries have. Because a single PC going down in a small party is a much larger burden than one going down in a party of four or more. You want to be careful not to completely wipe out the PCs if they have a few if they have few party members to back them up. If you've made some really nasty adversaries, then you can make a really nasty encounter, but just be careful and don't overdo it. Um, if the PCs are giving their all, but the baddies are just too sturdy, expecting more damage to come from the PCs, it can only lead to frustration and possible PC death. Yeah. Uh, larger parties, however, have the opposite challenges. Uh, having more damage potential overall, more powers at their disposal, and more allies to keep, help the dying ones get up means that you will likely need some impressive threats to keep them on their toes. With larger parties, you should you likely should give more health, armor rating, and damage to the adversaries as they will need it to keep up with the PCs. That said, it can go too far. Sometimes just giving the adversaries greater numbers is all that you need. Especially if you add lots of health and lots of armor rating because you have a large party, then the encounter could take a while. Uh, parties, uh, let's see, parties uh, that have more allies than their foes will benefit greatly from action economy, meaning that because they can do more stuff, they have more opportunities to deal damage, to stun a foe, or to heal a comrade, to just, just do stuff. Mm-hmm. They can do more stuff than the bad guys, which can occasionally be, which can be a deciding factor, uh, and can perhaps inform just how much health and armor rating you give your front, you give your enemies. Um, it's also good to know your PCs' powers, uh, what your PCs can do in kind in the round to rounds in combat. Who, which one of them can heal? Can they use poisons? Can they dispel magic? Can they deal penetrating damage through spells or stunts? Do they have anything that stuns or pins foes down? What level are they? Do they have special items that give them extra powers? Are they Templars? This can tell you if an adversary in their way can use its powers against the PCs at all. Uh, if the PCs can negate some of the damage that the adversary presents, or if it would be something that the PCs would have difficulty combating. Uh, take a look at the adversaries and see if they would be locked down by the spells of the PCs. Uh, good rule of thumb, if the PCs have a strong combo like spell power boosting items and talents, then spells that limit enemy movements like Mind Blast, Paralyze, Daze, or several of the other entropy spells, uh, make it so only some of your adversaries can fight off these powerful effects and not all of them. It can be very tempting to do that. Uh, it is a very strong knee-jerk reaction to see a powerful combo like that and immediately build up your threats so that they can counter that. Uh, and that that just turns into arms races. That's never fun. Uh, it's combative GMing. It's not cool. Yeah, Please don't. It's not going to work out very well. Unless you specifically planned for something like that mm-hmm. with your PCs. Yes. And then, I mean, you guys do you. Mm. But uh, in general circumstance, that's not going to turn out well. Right. 
Uh, and do keep in mind that these tips may be less than helpful if you're creating an adventure for others to use, if you're writing an adventure without uh, specific PCs in mind. You may not have the, you will not have the luxury of knowing the stats of the PCs who are playing it, and this can make it a bit trickier. Um, if you are writing an adventure like this, uh, as a sort of blanket statement of advice, assume the PCs are a little weaker than you might expect uh, for the assumed power level of the adventure. This can keep the adventure more accommodating for PCs who have taken different routes in their character's development than your adventure might expect. Uh, another good important, see, a very important question to ask about your adversaries uh, before you even get into the stats is what are they there for? Because this can this is something that can trip up people even before they've started getting pencils to papers. Why are you putting this here? Is this yes. a good idea to put this here? Um, if you put something in this, what would be its motivation to be here? That is a good question. It because if you build a super cool stat block for a bandit, let's say for a bandit group, and the PCs just give the and, and you know. The PCs are motivated. I see the bandits are motivated by money, and if the PCs just give them money, are the bandits just going to let them go? And then you just spent all that time crafting those bandit stats for nothing. That happens sometimes. That does. That happens. That happens occasionally. So. And honestly, I mean, unless you can come up with a good reason why they don't take, like maybe one of them was crossed by somebody they think looks just like you or something, and they think that you're that person, and mm. so they're not willing to take your money, or they're willing to take your money, but they want your lives too. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you just have to be like, well, dang, they've outsmarted me. I'll just take this stat block and bring it up somewhere else. Yes, absolutely. You can save it. You can always save these for later. Um, finding the motivation for these is going to be very important. Uh, it can also help your PCs know what kind of encounter they're getting into and how they can use the encounter to use that those motivations to influence how the game goes from there. Um, don't be afraid to borrow. I've heard oh, a great yes. one of my favorite quotes uh, when I'm creating stuff is. The good ones borrow, and the great ones steal. Uh, the other age games, especially Blue Rose and the Fantasy Age Beast Theory, are both treasuries of extra options for your adversaries. Blue Rose has got a whole bunch of specializations you can borrow. Most of them are pretty general. A lot of them are pretty general enough that you could see them showing up in Dragon Age. Um, it's got a lot of extra enemy powers. Uh, the Fantasy Age Bestiary, if you have access to it, uh, in the back of the book has a huge list of special qualities that you can just drop on an, on a bad guy, and it makes a completely different flavor for a monster. So keep those in mind, and don't be afraid to mix and match a bit. So, going to get into some nitty-gritty here. Uh, we're going to talk about adversaries in combat encounters. Um, and there are three ways most people create NPCs. Um, use the stats of another NPC and just reskin them for what you need. Adjust the stat block of an existing NPC with templates, new gear, or mm-hmm. swapping out their abilities for the ones they need, or create something from scratch. And all of these have their ups and downs. Uh, using the stats of another adversary can save you a lot of time, especially if the stats already do what you need them to do. Uh, this is also easier to do in the age system, where many creatures who sh- can share powers with similar functions, but different flavor text, which can reduce the chance your PCs notice your borrowing stats through their meta knowledge. I think it would be very difficult to recognize. Especially in, in Fantasy in Age. Fantasy or, Age. In, in, in Dragon Age. Any of the yeah. Age stuff. Yeah. Um, this can feel less satisfying sometimes and less unique if you're using something you've already used before. But, you know, say you need stats for a Bandit King right now. You need a really hulking, burly guy, and you need some good armor rating, and he carries a big weapon, and he, uh, and he rallies his troops. Uh, you look through the stats, and you find the stats for the Herlock Alpha. Um, they've got heavy armor, they wield two-handed weapons, and they've got a rally stunt, 
all of it's perfect. So you just you can just they say they just use the Herlock Alpha stats and the players never know. Yep. Uh, modifying a stat block that you already have access to uh, takes less time than making something entirely new and gives you a bit of freedom in crafting the threat. Uh, most of the work is already done for you. You've already got all the stat block, this whole stat block made. You just push things up and down as you need them. This can be as simple as moving ability ratings up and down. You can add extra powers and talents, or maybe even if you want to take them away to make the adversary weaker. Uh, this gives you a nice balance of control and time-saving technique. Uh, this is where you will likely use the elite, heroic, and epic templates from page 270 of the Cool Rulebook. These will help me out dozens of times. Hmm. The High Dragon was the first, funny the first time that my PCs fought it back at level 16, and Alora rose... She, she created. She wrote, her, it. she wrote it into the sky. She wrote the thing. And kind she of, jumped on its and back. Now it's, now it's kind of a thing. Whenever she sees a dragon, she has to jump on its back. She has yet to fail. Actually, it's true. I think every even like the three dragonlings I had her fight once, she jumped on all of them. She's one by one. Dedicated. That <laughs> she, is dedication to the cause. It's true. Of dragon jumping. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, of course, my PCs are level nineteen to twenty. I'll take that high dragon stat block and add the epic template to make something truly menacing. Or even uh, Do I have look. To be worried now. And you might. Oh great. Uh, now some folks want full control, so they may make the adversary from the ground up. This can make take the most time, but it gives you something truly unique to pit against your PCs, and it can feel really rewarding to make something uh, making something from scratch like that. This mm-hmm. also gives you a lot to pick from. It can take powers and abilities from other NPCs to create something entirely new. Uh, you can use the mechanics that the PCs use when leveling up their characters to make NPCs, but you do not have to. The players need that framework. You as the GM do not. Mm-hmm. So don't feel like you have to do it uh, to make it like fair. You can it, just you know, do it the way you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, also consider um, creating complementary adversaries. Adversaries that kind of work uh, next to each other. Uh, adversaries that maybe you design with other adversaries in mind. Yes. <laughs> um, most often those adversaries aren't going to fight alone anyway, so uh, there's plenty of examples of enemies that have like stunts or special powers that activate when they've got allies who are nearby, um, like the bandit, thug, bandit thug's gang mentality power, the brigand lieutenant's battle leader, uh, the knight captain's righteous fervor stunts, or even the giant rat's swarm tactics. Um, and even spells like Flaming Weapons, Entropic Cloud, and the Hex Spell Tree can also be used to support allies who can exploit the boosts to their, of their own power or the weaknesses that their targets gain. These can all create more memorable fights and tactical challenges. Do they go for the mage first? Do they lock down the heavily armored warrior first? Do they try to use the stunts to separate the foes who are gaining large bonuses for having allies nearby? And just keep those things in mind when you're adding extra powers to try and make things a bit more... Interesting? Jumpy aroundy? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, that's a little bit of high-minded stuff. We're going to do some uh, nuts and bolts stuff. Basics of creation. Um, well, first one is to watch the ability ratings closely. Your adversaries generally should not have ability ratings that are that much higher than the PCs. But that being said, some, abilities ha- some abilities have special considerations. Uh, Constitution is a very good defensive stat. It does not necessarily have a direct... It has a bit of a direct correlation with how high the threat's health is. But because you're not building a PC, it, mm-hmm. Constitution does not directly determine how much health they have. It's more like in proportion. 
Yes. So if they've got like a three constitution, they might have. They're probably going to have some pretty good health as well. Um, dexterity determines speed, some attack bonuses, and defense. And so this is a very powerful stat. Uh, be careful how high you set dexterity, especially if the threat is an NPC with talents like weapon and shield style, as uh, and is taking items like incense of awareness. Hmm. The highest dexterity of any of the foes in the core rulebook is six, and it's the archdemon. So, just something worth keeping in mind. Uh, magic is very easy to overdo, especially when mages are using this stat to calculate spell power. Absolutely. Please be very careful with this, as giving a mage more than a six magic can mean that their focused schools of means that they mean even with the six, there means their focused schools of magic have at least a power spell power of sixteen, and if they have the focus, it becomes a spell power of eighteen, which for some players is some characters is insurmountable. With the advanced focus, that's yeah, can be nineteen, yeah. Which means so. if you have a 1 in a stat, which is supposed to be like an average person, you need an 18 to make it. Correct. You need to roll three sixes. Um, and especially, that could be uh, go doubly for maybe entropy mages, because a lot of those spells require you to make magic entropy tests to resist. Yes. So if you're going up against mages and war- uh, rogues and warriors who have left their magic at like a minus 1 or a 0. Oh, then... you're not going to find any mages that have done that. But... Not going to find any mages that did that. I hope. But magic can get, especially when you've got creatures that have spell power, it can get pretty nasty very fast. Mm-hmm. Nasty fasty. Just be very careful that you make these numbers that everybody can at least possibly reach. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'd yeah. say, you know, if you've got, unless it's a major boss, mm-hmm. if you've got something with uh, target numbers for spell power that a character needs an 18 or a 17 to hit, you've probably overbuilt it. Yes. Unless it's like a major mm-hmm. boss. And maybe you expect that your PCs already have stats that are high enough that they probably have a chance of making the tests. If, I mean, if, if you're going with entropy magic, then they're probably going to be making a lot of magic tests. If you got a lot of mages in the party, then that might be okay. But mm-hmm. um, If you don't... If you don't, then they're probably not going to be making those tests, and some of those can be really debilitating and really nasty. So it can magic can be overdone very easily. Um, perception is going to be necessary for most exploration encounters, and if you want to make adversaries in exploration encounters, you absolutely can. Um, perhaps the PCs are going up against uh, other hunters in some kind of royal hunt event oh. in Relay, and the PCs have to... More rivalry than anything mm-hmm. else. Right, right. But the PCs have to complete an advanced test to find a specific beast before the bat before the bad guys before their rivals do. Um, it also influences whether enemies are going to be surprised by PCs trying to sneak up on them and can defend against the PCs backstab attempts. Other than those, it's not particularly doesn't particularly make uh, enemies more deadly unless they're using bows, uh, which means it will have to contend with armor rating. Uh, this mm-hmm. means that upping perception may be necessary, and the good thing about this damage stat is that the kind of damage it deals is usually easy to control because you're pointing and clicking at something, mm-hmm. um, so you can just so the enemy can direct the damage exactly where they need it, uh, and there likely won't be any like mages or rogues who have stumbled a little too, a little too close to the ogre. Yeah. Um, speaking of that, uh, strength is a pretty is a pretty big catch-all stat. It is this damage stat for melee attacks and is also the attack stat for melee attackers. Mm-hmm. Meaning an adversary who wants to be a very dangerous melee striker is going to have a lot of strength. Um, unlike most stats, it can be hard to overdo this one when you consider that armor rating will always be contending against damage rolls. 
So mm-hmm. don't be too afraid if, to have a higher strength than an adversary, as armor readings will always create an uphill battle for them. Um, for example, uh, maybe if you're looking in the age explorations and you found the greater giant that's got the strength of 14, uh, does 3d6 plus 17 damage on a hit, 10 armor rating is still going to take a lot of damage off of that. Uh, and nearly half of that damage roll is still going, and all of the damage rolls that that giant's going to be throwing at that PC, that armor rating is going to stack up and uh, is going to extend their life quite a bit. So, strength is not a bad one to go high on. Uh, eyeball your ability ratings to see if they make sense once you've got them all written down. One is average for most creatures and people in Thetis. Three is very good, five is exceptional, seven being phenomenal, and nine plus being truly extraordinary and rare. Just Mm -hmm. things to keep in mind. Um, You'll also want to watch the health of your adversaries, because that is going to determine exactly how long it's going to take that foe down. Uh, It's going to take take that foe down. Uh, And So if if you want a long fight, then you can give them a lot of health. Uh, but also keep in mind that health is the easiest stat in, uh, to adjust on the fly to help encounters have the flow that you want. Oh, yeah. So if the PCs look like they're having some trouble, maybe lower the health a little bit and tell them that they hit a weak spot and uh, let's say that they didn't notice before. Or maybe if the PCs are just railing through these folks, uh, add some extra health. Yeah, pat it. Yeah. Double it if you have to. <laughs> uh, watch your armor rating. As we mentioned for PCs, it is very easy to get armor rating out of hand uh, and can make fights slow to a crawl if PCs have few ways to mitigate or ignore armor. Oh um, man, yeah, that can be rough. Oh yeah. If you give the and see like all those Templars you guys are fighting with ten armor rating and the armor master and the armor training mastery degree. The primary issue we're having mm-hmm. is we have a way to get around armor. They keep dispelling it. They're all about dispelling that. This is this is revenge for all the telekinetic weapons, isn't it? It just might be. Just a little bit. It was coming eventually. I was kinda surprised I hadn't used it up to that point. Yeah, well, I mean, we very carefully did the diplomatic dance to avoid it. It's true. You worked very hard for that. Um, then, of course, uh, something worth keeping in mind is favored stunts for all of your uh, adversaries. It's not necessarily required, but it can be helpful to make combats go quicker and smoother because you can just look down at the, at the card you have for your staff, your adversary, and just be like, okay, they're old stunts. What are their favorites? All right, we'll go with this one. Mm-hmm. Um it just makes things go a bit quicker, and it can even throw a little bit of personality uh, into see into the mechanics because you can say a lot about a, about uh, your care about your adversaries by how they spend their stun points. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and then this next one I like to think as a biggie and something always worth remembering when designing your threats is give them what they need. The core rulebook at the beginning of the Adversaries chapter states that if you want to use the rules in the Player's Guide to build NPCs, you can certainly do that, but you are equally welcome to give NPCs whatever abilities, focuses, talents, and so on that seem appropriate. Please remember this when making any of your adversaries. If you think an adversary should have something, they can have it. Uh, While some games have very specific expectations for what enemies of particular threat levels are capable of, Age has no such assumptions. You should probably you should probably be able to tell if something is too much for your PCs, but if you think it works, it does. No questions. If you think that the fade touched great bear you've been dreaming up should have the high dragon's fire breath ability, it can um, have it. There are no mechanics, stat tables, or secret thetis police who are going to stop you from taking what you need. Uh, 
<laughs> Except maybe the Templars, if you are making Fade Bears. Don't make Fade Bears. Hintolins are bad enough. Please don't. Public service announcement. Don't make Fade Bears. Public service note. Don't make Fade Bears. I'm glad we've had that discussion. Yes. So, yeah, if you... I mean, I absolutely agree with that. Mm-hmm. Unless you're the kind of person who's like, I'm going to give it this and this and this just to make my PCs feel powerless. In which case, why are you jamming? That's that's a jerk thing to do. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. Um, the next thing to keep in mind is uh, boss-type fights. If you want to create a foe that takes on multiple PCs at once, this is a, this is a usual trap uh, for most RPGs because it can be very tempting to give the PCs someone big and imposing to fight all at once. Mm-hmm. And it can be really cool if done right. But what usually ends up happening, and I see it happen on the boards like every... Uh, Every other week is someone who uh, would be like, I made this thing, and if the PCs took it down super quick because it got overwhelmed. And it's like, that, that happens in any turn-based, action-based system. Yep. If, anime, if it gets to go if, once, if and it everyone gets to go once, six players. Mm-hmm, then they're going to go six times, and it's going to go once. So, <coughs> it can be done to do it. Uh, the be- It can be done to do it? Is that what I, I just said? I was about to call you out on that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it can be done to do it. Uh, the best way to make single target fights uh, work is to give that single target a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, this can mean giving them multiple turns, abilities that significantly reduce the cost of stunts, having them generate some stun points in every turn, regardless of whether they rolled any, allow them to perform more actions than usual in a single major ac- uh, than in a single major action. Give them ever extra actions in a round, or even regenerate health in their turns. You can even do multiples of these if you want to increase their threat rating even further. Uh, you'll want to be careful not to go overboard here, uh, as this kind of thing can get out of hand very fast. One or two of these abilities can usually work just fine, and if the fight isn't going their way, give them another one of these abilities. Also, <clears throat> they were holding back. In many cases, <coughs> if you give them like 8,000 of these abilities, your players are going to be like, what? Why? In what way is this a thing that right. should be happening right now? They'll notice. So, at least, I mean, if you are going to have to use a bunch, make up some in-story reason why they're happening. Possessed by a demon. That's a good one. That's, that's always, always a good one. A, good one. a blood all. mage did it. Like <clears throat> Blood magic. You know, ancient <clears throat> artifact. Mm-hmm. Just come up with something. Yeah. Give your... Give your uh, players a reason to continue to suspend their disbelief about yes, it. Yes, but extra action economy can go a very long way in making a foe more potent oh, and yes. can be necessary if you're planning on having that foe be the only foe in a combat. Especially if you have a group of four or more. Especially, yeah. Uh, now, we're going to add a couple of quick notes for adversaries and role-playing encounters. Uh, while many of the design tips from the previous section can be used to create foes who can quickly move from a role-playing encounter to a combat... Or, uh, let's see, or just as wholesale, role-playing encounters can have a depth of their own without reaching for a weapon. Hence, they have different considerations for design. Uh, these encounters tend to have less mechanical depth, but they can be just as memorable. It's true. Um, first is, the, of course, the big one to talk about is the communication stat. Have this. Max it. Have it. If you're, uh, the, It is going to be the de facto stat that determines how capable somebody is going to be in a role-playing encounter. It is... The stat to have in a role-playing encounter. It's not the only one you can use in a role-playing encounter, but it's the big one. Um, having an NPC with an 8 communication is a tower of persuasion and guile, and is already in one of the pre-written adventures in Blood and Ferelden. 
didn't like her. Yeah, she's she's you know mid that amidst that huge tangled web, she has built it. There's a part of me that really wants to get my persuasion all the way up to eight, just mm-hmm. so that I can say I did it. Uh huh. Take that. Take that. Um, it is, but that is a huge foe to take on in any role playing encounter. This, uh, especially if you're planning on having lots of role playing encounters, because there are fewer moving parts for role playing encounters, there are fewer, I guess, balancing factors to th- to think about for role playing encounters. It's usually going to be just communication uh, and a couple of extra things. Um, it can be very tempting then empathy to, uh, and uh, yes. self discipline. Mm-hmm. Or even strength intimidation, or willpower faith, or constitution drinking if you really want to, or if, <laughs> or, or if they really want to. Uh, dexterity ledger domain if you're planning on picking some pockets on the ballroom floor. Any or, knowledges. Yeah, any of the lore tests. Yep. <laughs> and a couple other cunnings. I think cunning heraldry is a, would be a good one, especially mm-hmm. in Orlai. you got to see that heraldry coming up and just know who they are right now. Uh, it can be tempting to pump up a foe's communication stat, but this is a stat you should probably watch to match the PCs, because having a number as high as 8 or higher means that most PCs are not going to be able to easily match them roll for roll. And that's what usually what role-playing encounters tend to go down to, is advanced tests or opposed tests. Mm-hmm. That if, said, mm-hmm. if you want your PCs to have to gather allies or talking points or resources in order to sort of make their case... Mm-hmm. then having a, an enemy that has a higher communication can make it a much more challenging and more rewarding uh, encounter. They'll you know they'll feel like the, uh, the evidence that they've gathered or the people that they've gotten on their side really mattered. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, in addition, uh, to keep things interesting, I mean, there's plenty is uh, talents and specializations. There are plenty of those already that use that work in combat encounters, but there are several talents like intrigue or linguistics or lore or observation or oratory that you can use in role-playing encounters. Mm-hmm. If you have an adversary who needs beefing up uh, in more ways than simply raising the communication stat, these make great additions because they give them some extra little bells and whistles. They're pretty nice. Uh, and then, of course, there are the special. There's the, the bard specialization, which can make for some very clever and exciting role-playing adversaries. Uh, and even the first degree of the Chevalier specialization can have some fun with their first degree of the spec being able to use communication etiquette in place of communication deception to perform a taunt stunt. Basically, Orlé. <coughs> yeah. People or- from Orlé. Yeah, yeah, Orlé. Just just be Orlesian. That's a great way to do it. And um, let's see, because the Bard's got uh, the Song of Valor is like plus one in attack rolls. Not terribly helpful in a role-playing encounter, but... Mm-hmm. The next ones they have are the Song of Friendship and the Song of Captivation, which can be very useful, which can be oh, very yes. nasty, especially if used against your PCs in a role-playing encounter. Maybe there's a couple of bards who are trying to work against them, and maybe there's one bard that's trying to, like, that's maybe, like, singing a song uh, up on stage, but is, like, looking at them to keep them, to kind of uh, keep their attention, have them use that song of captivation. Mm-hmm. PC has to start making willpower self-discipline tests or lose their actions. That's pretty nasty. <laughs> and the commu- and the song of friendship, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, after you, I think uh, you have to take a little bit of time to perform it, um, and then when you're done, PCs get uh, bonus to communication. Uh, let's see, communication, I think it's deception, persuasion, seduction... Uh, and etiquette tests for the rest of the for the rest of the encounter. 
Mm-hmm. So and and of course your adversaries could be if they're bards they probably they maybe they did that before they even came in so they've got plus ones on top of everything that they've already got. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind crossing some things over from other age properties, Blue Rose in particular has an excellent collection of talents uh, for making role playing encounters more interesting, and allowing the PC and allowing your PCs to take them can also be fun. Uh, but Blue Rose has got like has got like the spy specialization, uh, and the the diplomat, the noble, the <laughs> commander. Weirdly enough, the diplomat does not actually at any point increase your communication persuasion, which I thought it's was a little bit strange. Yeah. It's more about comporting yourself well than convincing people to do things for you. It's very strange. It's, it's yeah, it's a little different. Um, I kind of I like it though, and of course, uh, Blue Rose has also got a lot. Uh, has also got plenty of its own talents, like the performance talent, which is much nicer than the Dragon Age music talent. <laughs> yeah, I will be replacing the music talent in Dragon Age with the performance talent from Blue Rose because it is because really it does cool. something. It, it does stuff, and it's really cool stuff. <coughs> Highly recommend it, and of course, there are a couple of other talents. If I'm not now. Well, I don't know if there's any other talents beyond that one in Blue Rose. Uh, of course, the specializations are all really solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bard works very differently in Blue Rose. You'll probably want to, if, you, if you'll probably want to consider sticking with the Dragon Age one because it, it the, works perfectly fine. Given this is a Dragon Age podcast, that's probably for the best. Yes, I yeah. wouldn't worry too much if you guys Wild see something. Arcane. If you guys see something in. The uh, talents in one yeah. of these books, then go Inspire. ahead and edit. Do that one. That one's a good one. There you go. You found one. <laughs> I found one. There it was. I was looking right at me. And I was looking right at it. Yes, you were. Meant to be. I'm glad you found it. Additionally, the expert <laughs> class of Blue Rose also has some cool abilities for role-playing encounters specifically, and can make some very unique powers for your adversaries. Uh, and one and a special note about role playing encounters in comparison to combat encounters is party sizes mm-hmm. can mean less in role playing encounters as many of role playing encounters usually require one or two speakers to represent the party. Some encounters, like several of the PCs participating in a forum, may allow multiple PCs to take a turn, but for the most part, you're probably only going to have one or two PCs contending with one or two adversaries. Mm-hmm. So the stat comparisons are going to be a lot slimmer in a role playing encounter. You're basically going to be looking at what do the PCs come to this encounter armed with, what do the NPCs come to this encounter armed with, what are their communication stats, and what role-playing talents and specializations have they got. And if you want to get everybody involved, just make sure that there are as many social adversaries with sort of varied skills as you have people. Mm-hmm. The Landsmeet actually makes an excellent uh, way, uh, way to like represent a role-playing encounter. Uh, and a great role-playing encounter adversary in Loghain. It probably has a fantastic communication score. Yeah, well, not anymore. Well, I guess it depends. I guess it depends on your on your world not state. Not anymore. <laughs> He's dead. And your voice is going to be dead if we don't wrap this up. So. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, we should probably wrap this up before I turn into a frog and croak. <laughs> yeah, too yeah. late for the croaking. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thank you all again for listening to the Ones of the Thetis podcast. We really hope you enjoyed this. Of course, if you have any questions or any suggestions for later episode topics or want to send us something cool that you found or made, mm-hmm. then... You know where to find us. You know where to find us. Uh, this is Ren, wishing lots of sixes on that dragon die. And this is Jessica, wishing you good heels and happy feels. Thank you so much for listening to Ones of the Thetis podcast. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Talk to you later.